turned on my microphone. I have so enjoyed these last uh, several months of stories, haven't you? And we heard today from Ben and Katie Gardner, uh, uh, Drew and Katie Gardner, then last week from Ben and Katie Nalty, and then we had Mark and Tracy and John Hurdle and Isabella McConnell, all these stories. I mean, the stories are almost better than the sermons, Amen. right? Don't, don't, yeah, don't say anything, uh, Jimmy Stewart, but I was hoping for silence or, or staunch disagreement. That's what I was uh, looking for, but so grateful for these stories and all the manifold ways they're ministering to us. If you brought a Bible today, we'd love for you to turn to Acts chapter 20. It's where we are, where, where we've been these last couple of weeks. We're looking at influence. Now, my young staff team, they told me around my table a couple of weeks ago, when, when I, you mentioned influence, well, I thought it was, so we're not, we're talking about positive influence. We're not talking about the, the conception of uh, influence where it's, you know, the negative, modern, shallow world of celebrity fascination where you're trying to get followers and to manipulate people and point to yourself. We're talking about a deep abiding influence. We're talking about life on life. We're gonna talk in the weeks ahead about mentoring, about what life on life looks like, about how lives change in the pattern of Jesus Christ. When we draw closer to each other and we open up ourselves and we admonish one another and encourage one another, bear one another's burdens and confess our sins to one another. We're talking about mentoring. We're gonna look at lives in scripture. We're gonna talk about examples. We're gonna have stories on the stage. We're going to talk about parenting. We're going to talk about the power specifically of fathers. And I cannot wait for these weeks ahead. Today, the message is about finishing well. If you're going to have influence, you're going to want to finish well. In week one of influence, we talked about how to have influence. All from Acts 20, we've derived it from this text. In Acts 20, we learned that the way you have influence is the way that you, or how you live. Uh, the work you do or how you do the work you do, what you go through, and then specifically uh, who your words point to. Paul says in Acts 20, do you remember this? He said, hey, I minister with my hands so that I can have to give to those in need. Um, he did work in a way that honored God. I hope you do. I ask you the question. I ask you to ask the question, what drew you to your work? And in what way do you see, uh, do you see God's glory in your work and your joy in that and the good of other people around you. Work is a massive thing and it's ordained by God and do that well and watch the influence of your life that you can have on other people. Um, he talks about that we were close together. Um, we, what, remember this, we, in, we impress people from a distance, but we influence them up close. I believe every pastor and spiritual leader ought to be local. They ought to be local, no matter the size or manner of their church. They should live among the people and know the people. And that's true of every every life. Last week, we looked at three ways to keep away negative influence. Do you remember we talked about how you should guard your, yourself? You should watch over yourself. Keep watch over yourself. When God created man and woman, he put them in a garden, and he told the man specifically, uh, work it and watch out. Work in the garden and watch over it. What does it mean? It means to protect, to guard, to um, care for, and to keep out. Your mind is a garden. Keep out, care for it, keep out what could harm it, what could damage, what could, be, uh, what could defile it, what could uh, corrupt it. Keep that out. We need to keep negative influences out. It, it's easy as parents. We had so many parents in the first service with young children. And I know, man, I remember those days. You remember those days you're like, you, you want, the way to raise your child is to keep, like, keep them in a bubble. Like raise a little bubble boy or a little bubble girl and so that no, that no negative influence could ever experience it, which is a terrible way. I, I know it's in your heart, but it's a terrible way to parent. Uh, I did campus ministry for 14 years, and the wildest college freshmen were people who lived in a bubble. So you, you and I cannot, religious people, you and I cannot live in a bubble, and we're never told to. But we do need to think how we cultivate the mind. 
how we work and watch over, how we care for and keep out. But here's the thing. I'm preaching to me more than anybody, but I am preaching to y'all. You can't be a leader fit for God's church. If you're, you can't look out over other people. You can't guard over other people, as the scripture says, unless you're guarding over yourself. And so I ask you, we had a great group of men in my office early Friday morning talking about this, what we mentioned last week. I challenged you, when you think about guarding over yourself, keeping watch over yourself, to think about your personal time with God and your points of vulnerability. And I, I give that to you today. So we guard over ourselves as leaders. It starts with us. And then we're to shepherd one another. Why? Because um, wolves are coming in. Wolves are coming in. Uh, Paul says in Acts 20, y'all remember this? Savage wolves. And they distort the truth. And so maybe it's not you who's fallen off the path. Maybe it's not you um, who's been negatively influenced. It could be someone you love. And Paul says, it's maybe one of the hardest things about my job is sitting with parents or loved ones who someone has deconstructed, someone has left the faith. The Bible would call them a prodigal. They're far from home. What do you do? As hard as it is to do, you commend them to God. You commend them to God if they've, they've had the truth distorted. But it happens. And so we can have so many relationships with the truth. Scripture teaches. We can, we can wander from the truth. We can distort the truth. We can defile the truth. Uh, we can deny the truth. Uh, you can always be learning and never come to the knowledge of the truth. Or you know what? Or you can know the truth and the truth can set you free. And if the, this truth, if, if you're not getting it here, find somewhere you can get it. But look, if you're learning Jesus' truth, it's setting you free. Like, it's, like I'm just telling you, not a perfect world, not a rosy picture, but man, truth that I know in Jesus sets me free. I don't have to run, I don't have to hide, I don't have to prove myself. I try to sometimes, but that's my sin. Uh, but look, the gospel, the truth of the gospel is so freeing. And I ain't even started preaching yet. Now we're going to start with Acts chapter 20. Y'all ready? How to, how to finish the race. And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace. Paul says in this version that I've been preaching from lately is my purpose is to finish my course. Now, what does he mean? Course there doesn't mean an academic course. It certainly doesn't mean a golf course because those didn't exist back then. But what he does mean is a racing course. He means a running course. And they were, they were big back then. Track and field. I don't know. We're, I got some of our guys and gals here today, some in the earlier service. Track and field is a big deal. What's big now? Is track and field big? What's big? What's the biggest thing going on now? Y'all know? You want to get this answer right if you're going to hang out in pop culture. Anybody know? Y'all know? NFL. There's nothing bigger than the NFL. Then you bring Taylor Swift into the picture. There is nothing. I mean, if Taylor Swift dated a guy in track and field, can you imagine how big track and field would be today? But hear me now. I want you to be, get this right in history. Track and field was a big deal. And at this time, at the time of the writing of Acts 20, um, there, this was the precursor to the Olympic Games. The Olympic Games didn't exist, but they almost existed. Like what was happening in track and field and some of these other sports, especially track and field, uh, was setting the course for what was about to come. So track and field, a very, very big deal. And what's he saying? He's saying, let me tra- change translations to you and put it this way. He's saying, my only aim is to finish the race. My, my only aim is to finish the race. Now I want to share something I believe God wants me to tell you today. It's the truth. It's not going to sound like the truth when I first say it, but it's the truth. Um, I am an award-winning athlete. I have uh, some things to show for it. I just happen to bring. 
I know you don't believe me, but I have several medals that I have been awarded through the years. If you want to come up later and see, they have my name on them and everything, a certificate of authenticity. But these medals, I do want to be honest with you, though. These medals, they don't say champion. They don't say first place finish or second place finish or third place finish or 32nd finisher. But here's what they do say. All of them say finisher. They all say finish. Running, by the way, is the perfect sport for me. Running, distance running. And by the way, Paul here is not talking about sprinting. He's talking about stamina, endurance. He's talking about when things get long and difficult and uncomfortable. Do you bail out or do you stay the course? He's talking about stamina, the language here. In fact, the, he, there's two other places. You, you know the Bible mostly talks about walking. Uh, the, they walk with God in the cool, in the garden, in the cool of the day. Enoch walked with God. Uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus walked with Jesus. Their hearts burned within them. Colossians chapter 2, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Walking is the metaphor. It's dominant in the Bible. But a few times it talks about running, like today in Acts 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 12. And when it says run, when it says race in Hebrews 12, it's the word Argo, where we get the Greek word argon. It means to labor, to really put yourself there. It's stamina and it's endurance. But running, endurance running, is the perfect sport for someone like me. It's suited for the marginally coordinated. When I run long distances, I don't have to throw anything or catch anything or kick anything or tackle anybody or block anybody. I just run. And the question is, can you stay the course? Can you endure the desolate stretches and climb the long hills? My only aim is to finish the race. Now, when we're studying the Bible together, it's always good to think about uh, when was this written? Where was it written? To whom was it written to? We've been answering that, and I'll do a quick, a quick little take on that this morning, but Paul wrote this to a place um, um, in it's called Miletus. It's 36 miles south of Ephesus in the Mediterranean world. You have Jerusalem down here, and you got Corinth and Greece and the Roman world up here all the way across the Mediterranean. You have Ephesus in places. This is right toward the end of his third missionary journey. He had the first and second and third missionary journeys, which have been really, really studied throughout history. I don't know if anybody studied your vacations or places you've been, but Paul's have been studied. They teach, they teach full classes in seminary about his missionary journeys. So he went to this place called Miletus, and you can even read this uh, extra biblically and in the text in Acts 20. He wanted to go to Jerusalem for Pentecost, but he stopped. He stopped. He may have been late, but he stopped and he stopped. And I love the language there. Did anybody pick up on this? He said, the Holy Spirit was leading me and confirming, but uh, I had no idea what was going to happen. And some of you are too certain. Some of you, you're from a branch of theology, like God told me, God told me, God told me, God told me, God told me. Well, he may tell you, but he didn't spell it all out. You got to go to Miletus to find out. And there's all kind of, it's the wonderings and missionary journeys of the apostle Paul. Man, the the Spirit, John chapter 3, Jesus said it's like, it's like the, work of, the work of the Spirit. It's like the wind. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. And that's what we see in these journeys. So he's at Miletus. Miletus is only mentioned twice in the New Testament. It used to be an important place. Not much anymore. Ephesus became the dominant city. Miletus is mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when Paul says, these sound like planet names. He says, Erastus stayed in Corinth, but um, Trophimibus um, was back sick in Miletus. And that's the first time it's mentioned. And then here, uh, or another time, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 20, Miletus is mentioned. It's, the, it's a, an out-of-the-way place at this point. And Paul said, on my way to Jerusalem to Pentecost, I want to be there by Pentecost, but I'm going to stop and I'm going to call the elders of the church together. 
And you know when he summoned the shepherds to come together, you know what they did? They all came. Which, let's just stop for a second. Sometimes we miss the obvious. That's spiritual, that's spiritual influence. And I'm not saying you have to have a big following, but you need to have a following. And if you're investing in a few people, the elders and I watched a video this week, our elders and overseers, where the leader said Tim Elmore, that was a pastor out west for Susan for a number of years, he said, um, more time with fewer people equals greater impact. More time with fewer people equals greater impact. I hear people complain about pastor so-and-so, this leader, that leader. We can't give people, you can't give yourself to everybody all the time, and you shouldn't. More time with fewer people equals greater impact. And we see this, and these leaders came to Paul because he had invested in them, and they had invested in him. We see the incredible influence. There's a passage, it's two chapters later, read it later, and fact check me, but in Acts 22, there's a mob after Paul. Y'all ever had a mob after you? Anybody had like a mob ready to mob you? Isn't that what mobs do? Mobs mob people. And like they were about to mob him, and it says in Acts 22 that Paul spoke Aramaic to them, and they, they went quiet. That's a, that's a cool thing to do to a mob. I'd, I'd call like German shepherds and police dogs and water hoses and calm the mob. If a mob came after me, never had a mob, hope to never have a mob. But Paul had this influence. But, you know, what languages did Paul speak, by the way? I don't know the full answer to that, but I know he spoke Hebrew. That was his native tongue. He also spoke, um, he spoke Greek, which was the travel tongue of the Roman world. And he spoke Aramaic, which is the Hebrew dialect used mostly in Jerusalem and surrounding areas. So Paul's a brilliant man. And by the way, if you're smart and know your stuff, you're going to have influence on people. If you're a highly intelligent person, uh, leverage that for the, for the kingdom. Be careful of pride, but leverage that for the kingdom. So here's Paul with his great influence. He quietened a mob. And when he called the church, leaders of the church, they came. <clears throat> Excuse me. They all came. That's influence. You know you're influencing people if you invite them over and they come. And so our church is full of, uh, this is not condescending, but little shepherds, little shepherds, where you're shepherding people. If you're a group leader, you're shepherding four to eight to 10 people. And the goal of it, okay, I'm not stating the obvious, is to love and influence and teach and be with and spend time with so that when you call them, they come over. And we see this here. We see it in Paul. And I love the end of Acts 20. We don't, I don't read it, but I'm going to loosely quote it at the very end of Acts 20. They grieved. Do you know why they grieved? Because they would never see his face again. They, they prayed, and they wept, and they fell on the beach. And I love this. I was reading it again afresh this week, and it says that they followed him to the ship. Like when he was, they followed, And I love that because I remember 29 years ago when I was in love with a brunette from out west. We dated long distance. We couldn't wait to see each other. And when we would see each other, we would pour ourselves into this relationship. And we were, I was thinking, man, I, I might marry this girl. And it was, it was intense when we were leaving. That's back in the days we would say goodbye. We would like, you know, hug each other and Susan would cry and I would stay solid. But, um, uh, but um, yeah, but you know what we do? We would, this was before 2001, 9-11, depending on who was flying where, but like we would follow each other. You could almost walk on the plane. So people, the public was watching us, you know, just hugging and crying and on each other. Like, Goodbye, I'll see you in three weeks. And it was just, but, you know, I think of that, like, they followed him. As, I, I just think that's beautiful. Like, that's spiritual influence. That's love. That's Christian love. That's what the gospel produces. Man, I don't want to see you go. And if this is the last time, it hurts so bad. Yeah. All right, let me roll. When we think of finishing well, this is where we get it wrong. Finishing well is a cliche. And here's the problem with cliches. They're often true or partly true, 
but we're dulled by the meaning. It, you know, finishing well, finishing well, oh, you finish well. I want to finish well. Did you read that book about finishing well? And Henry Cloud wrote a book, Finishing Well. You know, no, no, no. Andy Stanley preached something for seven years. No, on, on, on. But here's the thing about finishing well. We think it's like older people, 65, 75, and there's the finish line. But here's finishing well. Finishing well is the young person. Finishing well is the high school or college student. Finishing well is the 20s or 30s. 20s when you're in your 40s. And it's not the finish line. It's the middle miles where you can't see the finish line. It's the desolate stretches. It's the hard things. Listen, this sermon, listen, if you're going to finish well, you need to run well. If you're going to finish well, you need to run well. So I'm going to have this conversation from Acts 20 is for everybody. But I would say it's not for the old folks as much as it is for the young folks, which sounds counterintuitive. I want to give you from running, the world of running, and all my athletic achievements. I want to give you four metaphors for, uh, for running that I think help us understand this and will help us finish well. The first um, are the hills. Uh, if you run or have run, you know it's the hills that can knock you out. It's the hills that can get the best of you. And I'm going to show you a picture of a hill that for years and years and years, miles and miles and miles and miles of running, it would get the best of me. Sometimes I couldn't make it. I, it, I, I questioned my sanity. I could feel my legs. I could feel my lungs. I would want to tap out. Most of the time, I made it up the hill. Okay, you're ready for the hill? It's impressive. Here we go. Here's the picture of that hill. Yeah, they, they laughed louder in the first service. It was humiliating. This is the hill. And this hill got me, but it wasn't this hill that really got me. Let me show you the next picture. There's, the inclines are not steep, are they? But it's just hill after hill after hill. So the conclusion I want to share with you today, as I did the first service, it's not the hill you were on that gets you. It's not the hill that you're on that gets you. We tell stories of, oh, I crashed at mile 18. It wasn't mile 18. I mean, that's where you crash. But it wasn't mile 18 that got you. It was the hill after the hill after the hill that gets you. If you're fatigued today, let me say this. If you're in peril of not finishing well, hills are normal. Hills knock out runners. Hills are, hills are normal for all of us. Your hill, if you if you're a student, it's exams, it's the pressure you feel. If it's work, it's the fourth quarter sales report, it's the pressure, it's the business, it's the downturn, it's the fluctuating market. If you're a stay-at-home mom, it's the two-year-old who's a heck of a negotiator at nap time. If you're, I mean, it on if, if it's an x-ray and you wonder if it's a sprain or a break, it's the person who wrecked into your car and you've got to go to the body shop and jump through hoops with insurance and get the loaner vehicle and all that stuff. You know they're going to tell you <clears throat> that your car is total because all cars are total. Minor fender benders are total. What's happening today is corruption, but I'm not preaching on that. Anyway, that happened to a friend of mine and it makes me curious. Let me say a quick word to the chronically overcommitted. It's easy. This is my pastor's heart. And I've been close to burning out myself. It's easy for you to look at an opportunity that someone presents to you. And what you do is this. You look at the elevation of a hill and you say, I think I can take that hill. 
But the better question is, what hills have I already committed myself to lately? Oh yeah, you, you could probably take that hill. But not if you got that hill, and that hill, and that hill, and that hill. You could do that if you don't have many other hills. So that's just a word to the chronically overcommitted. And if you hear and heed that, you could stop an ulcer. You could save a marriage. That's a big deal. So the second metaphor beyond the hill is the pace. When I went, when I went through my first midlife crisis, I started running long distances with some friends. In fact, a couple of them were here at the first service laughing at me. They know I'm telling the truth here or embellishing it to some extent, uh, the, the, the hard part of it. But I was running with guys who quite literally were like chiseled Greek gods. They would take off their shirt and just impress the crowd. And I would take off my shirt at the time and remind people of like E.T., just a, just a kind of a tough situation. But I would, you know what I did? I would run with these guys. I would run with these guys. And what, when we did these marathons together, we did six together, six marathons together. Actually, seven, I didn't finish one. I ended up in a hospital. Yeah. But I tried to run a different pace. I tried to run with them. They were younger, lighter, faster than I was. They were all those things, and I was trying to run something that I couldn't run. You need to run your pace. That's very important. If you're at a race, no matter the distance, it's better if it's a marathon, but if you're at a, dist- you're, you're at a race and you talk to someone at the starting line, and you just, let's just say you, know, you introduce yourself to someone and you go, hey, what do you, what do you want to run today? What's your goal? And they say, 345. I want to go 26.2 miles in three hours and 45 minutes then you know, and they, I'm sure they know, they've got to run at an 8.35 pace. Every mile has to be, if they run an 8.40, they got to run an 8.25, you know, you know the math. So they got to, they got to do this. But if you ask that same person, okay, so you want to run a 3.45, you got to run an a, a, a 8.30 pace. Then you ask them, which is kind of weird and creepy, but you say, hey, could you run a seven-minute mile? They're going to say, yeah, I could run a seven-minute mile. Then if you say to them, can you run two seven-minute miles? They're going to say, yeah. If you ask them if they can run, I'm looking at a Boston marathoner over here, a woman, a neighbor of mine. But if you, if you ask them if they can run a, a third seven-minute mile, they may go, oh, okay, I'm not sure. And if you say to them, you should, if you can run a seven-minute mile, you should run the whole thing, a seven-minute mile. And they're going to basically say to you, they're going to answer you because you've been creepy and bugging them right before a race. They're going to say to you, um, I can run a seven-minute mile, but I can't, I can't at that pace. I can't keep that pace up. And you and I know that with math and marathons, but we don't know it with our lives. And we wreck ourselves so often. And guys in my profession are wrecking themselves and other people in the process. So I'm a little bit vulnerable, but I think many of you are as well. When you're burned out, when you're weary and wilted and worn out, you know, there's a cliche that we say, especially if you're, you're kind of a, Middle income, upper income, you got a little jingle in your pocket. It's really common to say this. Man, I'm worn out. I need a, starts with a V. I'm worn out. I need a, I need a vacation. Maybe you need this vacation. This was the end of a mission trip. If you sign up for one of our mission trips, you'll go hard. I know John Chris makes videos making fun of missionaries who just go on vacations. But if you go on a Fonder Church mission trip, you're going to go hard. It's going to be difficult. You're going to have some challenge to it. You may not like the beds you sleep in. But you get a vacation day or two at the end. 
This is in Dominican Republic. It was me a couple of uh, years ago. But you know, in uh, respect to Kenny Chesney, uh, the sun in the sand and a drink in my hand, if you're weary and wilted and worn out, um, a vacation is not enough to heal the frayed nerves of your soul. It's not. Sun, sand, drinking my hands, 70 degrees, beach and mountains all together, not enough. Not enough. I listened to a podcast last week, and uh, the two pastors said these two things. Time off will not heal you when the problem is how you spend your time on. Time off will not heal you when the problem is how you spend your time off. The, the one pastor was so impressed by that, he dropped the mic, but then he had something to say. He said this, a vacation is not an answer for an unsustainable pace. A sustainable pace is the answer to an unsustainable pace. So your change may not be minor or moderate. It may need to be pretty major. So reach out for help. Run well and finish well. And let me also say, for some of you, it's, you're not running a heavy pace. You're, you're laying back. Uh, the Bible has metaphors about that. And it's called sloth and laziness. And uh, God's not called you to coast through. Can I say that to whoever needs to hear it? God's not called you to coast through. Do you care? Have you found work to do? Are you part of a race that's meaningful? Sometimes when we get to mile 18, I think I said this, we go, oh, it's mile 18, but it's not. Build the kind of life that you don't want to escape from. Build the kind of life that you don't want to escape from. We escape into affairs. We escape into drugs and alcohol. We escape into the longing for a vacation. We escape and we're, we become part of the large global tribe where nobody wants to be where they are. Everybody wants to be somewhere else. And you fantasize about a future and you're losing the, the love and the presence and the influence you can have with the people who matter the most to you. They don't get that. You're cheating them because you're escaped into something. Live the kind of life you don't want to escape from. Talk to people about the hills and the pace. The third metaphor, and I need to move fast, it's recovery. It's the word recovery. If you go to a race and you enter the race, you'll go probably the, the day of or the day before. Usually it's the day before at these big event marathons. And you'll go to a packet pickup. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You'll go to the packet pickup, and in that packet, you'll get a T-shirt. You'll get your bib number. You'll get another little um, thing with magazines and advertisements and promotional material talking about the next race. And I remember I picked up one, a little booklet. It wasn't a book, but it was a soft little booklet. And it was called, um, it's a series of books that you've heard of, but it was How to Run a Marathon for Dummies. And you know the first chapter, oddly enough, you know what the first chapter is? It's on recovery. The first, that's, isn't that weird? First of all, don't read that book the day before the marathon. You're already, you're already messed up. But, but the first chapter is on recovery, which I thought was stupid. And then I'm like, genius. So when you recover... Somebody needs to hear this. Here's what you do to recover after a race. When I was in Fargo, North Dakota, I ended up on the sidewalk convulsing. They took me to the hospital in an ambulance. But most other times, I finished. I'm, I finish. 
drink, eat, stretch, change, ice, walk. You know what I want to do? I'm going to get a Diet Coke, which isn't good for you. And I just fall in the grass in my wet clothes and just lay there looking for attention and ready to post my time on social media if it was good. But I just like, I don't want, you know what? I don't want to recover. And listen to me. There are things that you don't want to do that are healthy for you to do, but you don't want to do them. You know what, you know what runners can do? Those people that were on the ground probably just did something heroic, but they would do these things as they're taught, as the doctors and scientists, they cut their recovery time in half, in half. So here's what I want to say to you. Resting is not a passive activity. You know that Hebrew, I know this is a spiritual thing, it's tied to the gospel and it's different. So some of you who do exegetical work in the scriptures may come after me. But in Hebrews 4 it says, um, work hard to enter into his rest. Isn't that funny? Work hard to enter into his rest. So here's how I was thinking of it. Recovery involves active work. You can't just lie in the grass in your wet clothes. Rest, finding rest, and some of you need it, it asks something of you. Are you willing to do that? What restores you? What restores you? For some of you, it's painting or drawing or canoeing. For me, it's axe throwing. Not really. Just thought I'd be random. I've never thrown an axe. I think I'd be bad at it. Do you know what restores you? Do that. And you know there's some healthy things that you don't want to do, but you should do. And you can recover better from that. You know what we want to do? We want to, we want to, this, the modern world, especially if you're, you know, you make $30,000 more a year. I mean, you want to melt into a couch and watch 36 hours of Netflix. And you get caught in a YouTube rabbit hole. Why? Because they'll say something to you like TV heartthrobs of the 90s. What do they look like now? It will surprise you. And you know what? I got to find out what they look like because they throbbed my heart in the 90s. Now he looks like that. Now she looks like that. I look better than my heartthrobs of the 90s. No comments. Who's richer, Serena or Venus Williams? I just need to know. <laughs> and if you're not careful, but this is, this is a serious thing, though. I read a quote when I was a kid in the 70s, and I remember it today. How tripping is that? The guy writes this, it's, you know, it's all about TV back then, it's kind of all we have. He said, television watching, just as it refreshes a man who is weary, so it wearies a man who's refreshed. So if it's the rabbit hole of YouTube or the 36 hours of binging when you melt into the couch, what you think is restoring you is not restoring you. So find something that restores you. Throw some axes, hang out with some people, sail, whatever you do. Whatever restores you is different than what might restore me. But find that and pursue that. Uh, that other thing, it can, it can refresh a man who's weary, but if you hang at it too long, it's going to weary a man, woman, who's refreshed. The final thing, as Lauren and the team come up, is grace. The final metaphor, we've talked about hills, we've talked about pace, we've talked about recovery, but now we end with this. What kind of race was Paul running? We should probably ask that. Verse 24, we read it, let's do it one more time. Acts 20, 24, he says this, but I consider my life of no value to myself. That's a funny statement if you're, into, if you're really into self-care, which, by the way, can I just say, the pendulum is swinging in the wrong direction. 
the pen, no one's going to be at your funeral and go, hey, so-and-so was just so much about self-care. They cared for themselves. Woo-woo. We couldn't count on them. Church couldn't count on them. They never really served the world, but boy, they got that self-care right. So let's just gather around the casket and thank God for self-care. I wouldn't say that if I hadn't said what I just said about recovery, right? You with me? Listen to the whole sermon. It's almost over. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's what? Grace. Of his grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Five times I've received 39 lashes. Three times I was shipwrecked. I know cold and hunger. Then he starts sounding like Dr. Seuss in a negative way. I danger from rivers and danger from robbers and danger from countrymen and danger from my enemies and danger in the city and danger in wilderness. Wilderness, on and on and on. These were the things. And he said the greatest care of all was caring for all the churches. And Paul saw so much brokenness. His own heart was wretched before Jesus got a hold of him. And here, listen. I've had late night conversations with people lately who are in despair and they're only seeing the brokenness of this world. And we never deny, look at me, we never deny the brokenness of this world. But the beauty of God's grace is greater. The beauty of God's grace is greater than the brokenness of this world. So I want to ask you today as we close to think about finishing well, to think about the race that you're running. And it's, it's different for us But I hope your race, central to it, is testifying to the grace of God. My prayer is that God gives you a fresh vision of his goodness. Would you stand with me? And as you do, I want to remind you what the psalmist, you don't even have to be a Christian, know what the 23rd Psalm says. And he says, your what? Your goodness and your mercy will follow me all the days of my life. If the enemies worked you over and life is beating you up, I know you could be skeptical, but I hope these words could penetrate to you. God's grace is greater than anything you're going through. And the beauty he's given you, open your eyes, get a fresh vision for what he's doing. Hills, pace, recovery, above all, far and away, the most important thing is God's grace. Father, bless this time of prayer and invitation. Work among your people. It's just a few minutes, but it can be important as we orient ourselves to you. In Jesus we pray. Amen.